Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 62. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash theweekindoubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. No shout-outs this week, so I'll get right to business. I'd like to dedicate today's show to a topic I've discussed in passing a number of times in previous episodes, and that would be the First Council of Nicaea, which in short was a council of bishops convened in 325 AD, or CE, Common Era if you prefer, in a part of what is modern-day Turkey. The purpose of the council was to come to a consensus on a number of theological issues ranging from uh, settling on a date for Easter to coming to some agreement on the nature of Christ's divinity and his relationship to the Father. Whether or not you're a believer, I think it's good to know about the First Council of Nicaea. If you're a believing Christian, I think it's good to have an understanding of the early church for your own edification. And if you're a non-believer like myself, I think it's good to have an understanding of the Council of Nicaea because I think it's a prime example of the man-made nature of religion. Either way, it's a historical event, and in my opinion, you can never have too much historical knowledge. So as I've already stated, the First Council of Nicaea was convened in 325. It was an ecumenical gathering of bishops convened by the Roman Emperor Constantine, sometimes referred to, whether rightly or wrongly, as the First Christian Emperor. And the reason why I say that is because the nature of Constantine's religiosity or spirituality is still something of a murky or contentious matter. Some believe he patronized Christianity for largely political reasons, while others believe he was a sincere Christian. But he does seem to have had a kind of evolving spirituality. I believe like most Romans of the day, Constantine was initially a pagan, but there's this kind of pivotal or transformational moment that takes place in the life of Constantine. Before engaging in battle against his co-emperor Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge, Constantine supposedly had some kind of vision. There's a couple of different accounts. According to Lactantius, Constantine had a dream the night before the battle, instructing him to mark his soldiers' standards or shields with a Christian symbol. While Eusebius claims Constantine, while marching, saw a vision in the sky lit by the midday sun. To quote Eusebius, He saw with his own eyes in the heavens a trophy of the cross arising from the light of the sun, carrying the message, In hoc signo vinces, or... With this sign, you will conquer. Supposedly, the sign Constantine saw, or was instructed to mark on his shields or standards, was the Cairo, a Greek symbol representing the first two letters in the word Christ or Christos. You've probably seen it. It looks kind of like a letter P combined with a letter X. So you can see receiving Christian visions, etc., makes Constantine look rather Christian. Also, he was partly responsible, along with Licinius, for the Edict of Milan, which stated that Christians should be free to practice their faith without oppression. 
But on the other hand, as I stated before, it's not certain just how Christian he was. He kept the title Pontifex Maximus the rest of his life. It was a title associated with the pagan priesthood. Also, his victory arch, which celebrated his victory over Maxentius, was decorated with pagan imagery. And he had coins struck bearing the name of Sol Invictus, a pagan sun god. Whether or not Constantine associated Sol Invictus with Christ to some degree, I think is still somewhat um, a matter of contention. Constantine's mother, Helena, was a devout Christian, um, but it's not sure if her son adopted his mother's faith in his youth, or as I suggested earlier, if his spirituality evolved over time. Helena was an interesting character in her own right. Uh, she was supposedly a, a bit of a feisty character, and uh, was, she was probably well into her 70s when she traveled to the Holy Land to help discover Judeo-Christian relics and holy sites. According to Christian writers, Constantine proclaimed himself Christian around age 40, but despite that, he continued to employ pagan symbolism. Apparently, he put off baptism until Nera's death. One theory I read as to why he might have postponed his baptism is so he could absolve as much sin as possible. Basically, wait till the end. That way you get a clean slate regarding all the previous sin you've accrued in your life. Uh, there was another fun fact I learned about Constantine recently uh, that, for some reason, I had never heard of before. Supposedly, after defeating Maxentius at the Melvian Bridge, he had his body fished out of the Tiber and decapitated. Uh, that doesn't sound too Christian. Uh, so, Constantine was a man of contradictions, which in a way makes sense to me. I suppose, given the time, uh, this was Rome, 4th century, a uh, place kind of transitioning from paganism to Christianity. Uh, I suppose you'd expect someone caught between paganism and Christianity at, at the time to be somewhat conflicted, or you'd expect the nature of their spirituality to be in a um, state of evolution, so to speak. But anyway, back to the Council of Nicaea. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about the council is that it was where and when the Bible was put together, that uh, the bishops convened there, decided which books were in and which books were out. But as far as I can tell, that wasn't the case. I think it was actually one of the big fallacies or factual errors that biblical scholar Bart Ehrman accuses Dan Brown of making in the Da Vinci Code. It actually wasn't until 331 that Constantine commissioned Eusebius of Caesarea, an early church father and historian, to put together 50 Greek-language Bibles for the Bishop of Constantinople, which supposedly provided some impetus for deciding uh, which books would be considered canonical and which books would be out. So if the bishops at the Council of Nicaea weren't arbitrarily crafting a Bible, uh, what were they doing? Well, as I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons for the Council was to decide on a date for Easter. The Council settled on the first Sunday following the Paschal full moon following the March equinox. I think I uh, previously made mention of that in the uh, Weekend Out Easter episode. What else? Uh, oh, yes, uh, there's the nature of the divinity of Christ. That's a big one. And the nature of his relationship to the Father. 
Early church fathers like Origen and Tertullian had made mention of a trinity or divine three, um, possibly about as early as a century before the first Nicene Council. But there were different thoughts on the nature of Christ's divinity. Some thought he was more man than God, some more God than man. Some, like the Gnostics, thought Christ may have been pure spirit, not even possessing a physical body, an idea which we would see echoed centuries later in Islam. There was also an argument over whether Christ was equal in divinity with God or whether the Father was greater than the Son. The difference in opinion was addressed at the First Council of Nicaea. It's referred to as the Arian controversy, referring to a bitter dispute between the early church fathers Arius and Alexander of Alexandria. Arius believed the father was greater than the son and that the son had a beginning. Alexander believed that the father and the son were co-eternal and equal in divinity. Arius was actually labeled a heretic by the council, cleared later, cleared later on, and then deemed a heretic again after his death. I guess he couldn't catch a break. Although numerous creeds had already existed in early Christendom, including the well-known Apostles' Creed, the Council of Nicaea formulated a new creed known simply as the Nicene Creed. It helped to establish or reinforce the identity of Christ as agreed upon by the ecumenical convocation of bishops gathered at the council. Uh, perhaps convocation is a bad word. It almost smacks of... Uh, the Church of England, or or has an Episcopalian f uh, flavor. So merely say a gathering of bishops. Uh, the Nicene Creed seems to have a kind of Trinitarian flavor to it. It describes Christ as being the Son of God, but also describes him as being of the same substance as the Father, even calling him God of God, Light of Light, but also makes brief mention of the Holy Spirit, Decades later, in 381, at the First Council of Constantinople, the creed would be revised and further mention of the Holy Ghost would be added. I believe that version is referred to as the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381. I'm surprised I said that without stumbling over my tongue. Um, there's something about the image of a bunch of bishops arguing, arguing about things like, is Jesus one and the same with the Father? Is he co-eternal with the Father? Did he have a beginning? Uh, it's this type of thing, uh, along with things like Eusebius and others deciding which books are in or, in or out. Um, although, of course, as I stated, that didn't take place at the Council of Nicaea. That was later on. It's just things like that really illustrate to me the man-made nature of religion. You really have people kind of cobbling together and forging um, dogma. So obviously not even the early church fathers knew what the real story was. Um, but, th but that being said, despite my skepticism, you can hopefully tell I also have a genuine love for the subject matter. Uh, I, I love ancient history in general. I love the history of religion. I find the history of the early church extremely captivating and fascinating. Um, and with that being said, I suppose I'll call this one a wrap. And on a completely separate note, um, if you're a regular listener, then you probably know I'm a big Doors fan. This week, Ray Manzarek, the organist for the Doors, uh, passed away. 
Um, I, I believe it was after a long drawn out struggle with bile duct cancer. I think it was. And he always, I've never met him, uh, but he always seemed like such a great positive guy. I'm a huge Jim Morrison fan. Uh, I think almost maybe Jim kind of provided the dark energy to the band. And in a way, you could maybe argue that Raymond Zarek provided kind of the um, the light energy, uh, the more positive side. Maybe almost a marriage between the Apollonian and the Dionysian, as Raymond Zarek uh, might put it. And uh, after Jim passed away, I think um, Raymond Zarek was really kind of the one out there at the forefront of the the remaining doors evan- doing the evangelizing. Uh, he was very passionate and enthusiastic about uh, making sure the doors legacy lived on and introducing Jim Morrison as a figure and the music of the doors to uh, younger generations. And he also did some pretty cool musical stuff on his own. If you're a hardcore doors fan who collects all the, um, the lesser known musical stuff, uh, Ray Manzarek did some really cool side stuff. He did an album called the golden scarab, um, which I have, and he also, I'm kind of a fan of, uh, not kind of, I'm a big fan of medieval music and certain types of classical music. And um, Ray Manzarek did his own interpretation of Carmina Burana, uh, which was really cool too. And I think the cover art might have had a Hieronymus, a detail from a Hieronymus Bosch painting, if I remember correctly. Ray Manzarek was such a positive guy almost exuded this kind of light that it's kind of it's it seems almost surreal that he's uh that he's gone um so i may not believe in afterlife or i at least question it my thoughts are definitely with uh ray manzarek and his family and on the off chance there is an afterlife i hope uh ray manzarek shining on somewhere but uh, anyway, uh, this has been The Week in Doubt. As always, uh, thanks for listening. If you like the show, you can give me a like on The Week in Doubt Facebook page. You can go to The Week in Doubt YouTube channel and check out um, some of the audio with some sparse some sparse visuals I've uploaded uh, to YouTube of uh, past episodes you can also catch some little maybe snippets from atheist documentaries and debates and from real time with Bill Maher that I've put up there. Uh, you can also rate the show or subscribe through iTunes or Podbean. And uh, with that being said, uh, thank you once again.